everybody, Nathan here. No one could accuse me of being the fastest editor in the world. And I wanted to touch base with you real quick for a couple of reasons. First of all, this episode is pretty old, as it's going to become clear as you listen to it. This was recorded by Andy and friend of the podcast, David, towards the beginning of the protests. In fact, it's so old that David sent in a note to clarify some of the statements he made. So as soon as I'm done talking here, you're going to hear David's voice kick in with just a clarification of his position, and then you're going to hear a mini-episode between Andy and David talking about the protests. So I hope you like it. That's pretty much all I have to say. Mm, I love you guys. Hope you're having a good day. Okay, bye and stuff. Hey man, when you do get around to publishing that mini, can you add a note? We made that recording on like the second or third day of major protests. At that time, I took a very hesitant tone. At that time, the media narrative was overwhelmingly critical of the small amount of looting and violence. It was overly focused on it. And when we recorded, I wanted to start offering a bridge of thought away from that narrative. In order to try and construct that bridge, my tone was very cautious. I didn't want to be too vocally supportive of the anger because sometimes in order to shift people's perspectives, appeals generally have to be incremental. But at the current moment, I would voice the same opinions in a more radical tone. Because since recording, the public discourse has shifted towards being more what I wanted it to be in the first place. So... What I'm saying is, when you publish my words, I was more conservative than I felt, because at the time that I spoke those words, the community, the conversation, the discourse was more conservative than than I wanted it to be. And so, in the second and third day of protest, before anyone was talking about understanding and explaining the rioting, not justifying it per se, but like being like, what else do you want us to do? That's how I feel. I feel like, what else do you want us to do? But at the time that I recorded those words, that notion hadn't started being expressed in mass. That's the notion I wanted to be expressed, but I hedged my words on the discourse of the moment because the simple truth, the simple sociological truth, is that to be too radical is often to be ignored. And so I wanted to... I am myself fairly radical, And I wanted to be a bridge towards helping people become slightly more radical than the discourse at the time was. But I understated my views. And now, at this moment, people are more echoing the views that I wanted to echo at the time. And so in retrospect, my tone was more 
cautious than it would be now. And I just want that context to be understood when people hear the words that I spoke on the second or third day of protests. At this point in time, the notion that the rioting is a small thing in comparison to the overwhelming anger and the the largely peaceful action, that's no longer a controversial statement. But at the time of recording, it was. So I expressed myself in deference to that controversy. And um, I just want that noted. Thank you. Hey, uh, welcome to Beat a Dead Source. This is David, and I am invading the podcast. To all those listeners, I have been a guest once and am also a co-host on an episode that may or may not be released when you're hearing this. But this is Beat a Dead Source, and yet none of the people who made it have anything to do with this. I uh, literally called Andy, and I was like, Andy, I need to talk about some stuff, and I want you to publish it. And he said, okay. So, to be clear, Pat and Nathan and Andy are not liable for any of the controversial things I might say in the next little while, but I do want Andy's opinions, reactions, and participations in this topic. So, welcome to this mini-episode in which I have completely taken over. What's up, Andy? How you doing? <laughs> not not bad, I guess. I don't know. I really didn't... I did not sleep well last night because of all these riots in Minneapolis. And actually, I have, yeah. a, I have a very close friend of mine who lives in Minneapolis. Oh, really? Yeah, and apparently a lot of these riots were happening in his old neighborhood where he used to live. I see. And thankfully doesn't anymore. Yeah, So, and that kept you up at, that you like, from worry and anxiety and stuff? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't, I, I, I did sleep a little bit, but, but not very well, and only about yeah. five hours. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot, like, there's a lot of people who are being harmed by the riots who the, some, many of them are minorities themselves. Many of them are minority business owners. Many of them are people who have suffered under the oppression of the white supremacist police department and are now suffering under the backlash. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, there's, yes, there's just a lot of suffering and yeah. it's, it's imploding under its own weight. It is. So it's a weird, it's a hard thing to say, and it's a kind of a, I guess, an extreme take. But for me right now, I am, I, I guess I'm just going to rip the bandaid off and say yeah. it. I am a riot sympathizer. And I'm not, I, I'm not even like, and there's a lot, a lot of people who are, who are saying basically along the lines of, I totally understand their their hurt and their anger and their no one's listening and I know I understand why they're doing this but rioting isn't okay and right. these things are still bad and I'm not I I can't disagree with that No they're completely right but but I don't care Right and that's how the rioters too feel like that's how I would feel like if I if I was a person of color in that community Mm-hmm. It's easy to say that. <laughs> I I I do want to say, despite being despite being a white boy, I I experience a degree of racism here in Korea. Nothing what nothing what people of color in America do. I'm not equating the racism that I experience 
here with what they experience there, but I don't experience privilege here either. And so I'm in this kind of in-between place, I think, as a white person where I don't really know what it's like to be a person of color in America, but I know what it's like to not have privilege. And I can imagine sometimes, I can imagine, you know, I feel sympathy when I see things like the video of George Floyd. When I see that video, like, no, no, I'm not, white people in Korea are never at risk of experiencing anything like that. But I've been physically attacked just for being white, not to the point where my life was in danger, but to where I felt that you know, I was physically harmed because of my ethnicity. And I can imagine it being taken to that extreme. The, to, to Like, I, I haven't dealt with that, but I can imagine and I can empathize with what people in that community must feel like being born into it. I wasn't born into this. I chose this. And I, they were born into it. Their parents were born into it. They learned that this is what their great-great-grandparents dealt with and they, they're they told by the history books that it's supposed to be over now, but it's not. It's not. George Floyd was lynched. Mm. I won't even call it a murder because that's too light of a word. George Floyd was lynched. And mm. the rage that I feel uh, when I speak those words must be a fraction must be a fraction of the rage that the people in those communities feel. And I I want to say this. I'm not advocating that people go riot. I'm not saying to anybody listening that you should riot. And I'm not saying that the people who are protesting peacefully are wrong to try and do so. I'm not saying that they're wrong to ask others to do so. The people who are protesting peacefully, the vast majority, 98%, according to one of the the, the leaders of the, the activism, at least, they believe that nonviolence is the answer, and they might be right. And I'm not going to tell them that their philosophy is wrong. I'm not going to tell them that they should become violent. I'm not telling anybody that. But I know in my heart that if I felt the rage that I feel as an observer and multiplied that by the, by the number of times that I imagine it must feel like to be a victim, I would riot. I would. So I think add to that the decades of, of peaceful, nonviolent, uh, uh, polite protesting, Football players kneeling and mm. um, and mar marches, peaceful marches on Washington and all of these things that, that have been done. They have been done and they did nothing. No, no, they, no, no. They, no, they did they, nothing. Progress has been made. The Civil Rights earned, Act of 1967 was passed by peaceful protest. Let's not say it okay. did nothing. It hasn't gone all the way. It hasn't finished fixing the problem, but it has not done nothing. And I will push back on it doing nothing. Well, can I let's let's talk about the the sixties and stuff because I'm gonna have to now fact check this harder than uh, I've been looking for some good articles on this. I've read about it in a number of places over the years, and I can't remember exactly where. So I'm trying to find the facts on it. 
and who's written these articles and theorized this, but there is a fairly common scholarly theory, anyway, that Martin Luther King was only successful or as successful as he was um, because of the threat of Malcolm X and the Panthers. You know what? I have heard that theory. Fact check, fact check, fact check. And welcome back to Fact Check. Yeah, they're right. There is a school of thought that says that the violence or potential violence inherent in Malcolm X and the Black Panther movement was essential in the success of the civil rights movement. I'm going to read you a quote from violence and or nonviolence in the success of the civil rights movement, the Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. Nexus. It was written by August H. Nimitz, a professor of political science and African-American and African studies and distinguished teaching professor at the University of Minnesota. It's only 23 pages long. You should read it. I'm going to put it in the doobly-doo. It's, it's real good. Quote, it is indisputable that nonviolence, or more accurately, tactical nonviolence, played a central role in the victory of the civil rights movement. The moral high ground it seized garnered mass support, both domestically and internationally, decisive in its success. Working people throughout the U.S. and elsewhere were not only won to the movement's cause, but were inspired by it as well. Yet, violence did figure into the victory of the civil rights movement, the violence of its enemies. Indeed, at critical moments, civil rights organizers employed nonviolent direct action to provoke its enemies into blatant public brutality. The protesters won the moral high ground precisely because of their disciplined, nonviolent response to that brutality. Hands Up, Don't Shoot, made famous by the nonviolent protests against police brutality in Ferguson, Missouri, is an echo of that tactic. But there is another way that violence was consequential and has been insufficiently investigated. If respect and empathy were the reaction of most people to the civil rights movement, that of U.S. rulers can be summed up with one word. Fear. Despite Southern blacks' initial scrupulous and heroic adherence to nonviolence, their mass movement for equality, along with the often less polite risings of millions across the colonial world, rang on U.S. rulers' ears with the same hair-raising, ever-feared words, The natives are restless. This is exactly what drove their incessant daily reading of developments. African-American violence and or the threat thereof, I contend, go a long way toward explaining the government's response. I also claim that the government's fears were not provoked solely by the domestic situation. The international arena weighed heavily in its calculus. From both vantage points, American leaders felt compelled to make concessions that they had not originally intended to make. Decisive, in other words, in the civil rights movement's success were the mass peaceful protests and the potential threat of violence inherent in them. Anyway, you should totally read it. Let's get back to the show. Back check, back check, back check. And I remember same goes for Gandhi. Gandhi was only as successful as he was because of the religious violence between the Hindus and Muslims going on in the background. That also makes sense. I didn't know about that violence, but it doesn't surprise me. And I want to use what you're saying to transition into one of the things that I wanted to say. Totally. Which which is that whether you whether you endorse it or not, whether you think it's right or whether you think it's wrong, 
the fact that buildings are burning in Minneapolis has increased the media attention on this issue. There are more people that are aware of the lynching. There are more people that are paying attention to the peaceful protests because of the violent ones. Right. Um, and whether you endorse them or not, or think they're effective or not, that's debatable. But the fact that they have increased the attention is undebatable. And let me also clarify when I was talking about marches on Washington, I wasn't specifically, I wasn't talking about the civil rights marches in the sixties. I was talking about recently uh, in the last like 10 years. Okay. Yeah. But no, people seem to have stopped caring about protests and marches and these things. They don't, it doesn't matter. Um, Colin Kaepernick is still blackballed by, uh, which no pun intended, blackballed <laughs> by the NFL. Um yeah. For for kneeling in protest of black people being murdered in the streets Which, by police officers. For the record, and I don't know if you know this or, but for any listeners, Colin Kaepernick approached a, I believe a Marine, but some member of the military, and asked for advice on how to respectfully yeah. decline to stand for the flag, and it was a it was a service member that said kneel. Mm -hmm. Kneel to represent the flag at half-mast. That's the most respectful way to do it. Mini fact check. Colin Kaepernick initially sat on the bench during the national anthem until he spoke to former Seahawks player and Green Beret Nate Boyer. We sort of came to a middle ground where he would take a knee alongside his teammates. Soldiers take a knee in front of a fallen brother's grave, you know, to show respect. When we're on a patrol, you know, and we go into a security hall, we take a knee and we pull security. Was I, he receptive? I, very receptive. He said, I think that would be, I think, I think that would be really powerful. And, you know, he asked me to, to, to do it with him. And I said, look, I'll stand next to you. I got to stand, though. I got to stand with my hand on my heart. That's just what I do and, and where I'm from. Mini fact check. It, it's something, I, I had heard that. Um, and it's something that really bugged me all throughout that protest um that these players are kneeling during the national anthem and all of a sudden these right wingers are acting like kneeling for the flag or or kneeling in general is an act of disrespect right. kneeling is very literally an act of respect exactly is, you kneel before a king one of the most respectful um positions you can take it is which just goes to show that the, those those people who are had a problem with that they it wasn't actually kneeling it wasn't they they, they knew that these people weren't being disrespectful uh, that the players weren't being disrespectful by kneeling they just didn't like what they had to say right. and That's this exactly. is the thing like there's white people in America have had complete and total control over everything for 250 years. And I can understand how allowing other groups to help control things feels like losing power. It is losing power, but you're not losing all of your power. You're just sharing it equally with the other people who have to live with you. There's, a quote, there's a quote that goes something like, to those who are accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Yeah. And 
and we actually, I believe we've even had that quote pop up on previous episodes. As a matter of fact, it's so, it's so pertinent. It's so relevant and, and true. But here's what, here's the gray. Here's the gray. If the, if the looting and the rioting was only hurting Target and Walmart and these big corporations that are not franchises that are owned by rich, privileged, billionaire white people, I wouldn't give a, I wouldn't give a second thought to it. But there are, there are small business owners in that community who are minorities themselves who are, you know, having their businesses looted and smashed and hurt. Also, you can make the argument that it delegitimizes the the peaceful protests, which which I think is debatable. But but I want to focus on the the minority business owners who are directly being harmed by the violence, because I have so much sympathy for them. But and here's what here's what I want to talk about. Here's the question. I want to ask, and I don't have an answer, and I don't think that we'll get to an answer, but I want people to think about this question. There is a time for peaceful protest, and there's a time for revolution. Our country was built on a revolution, and when we had a revolution against the British, there were a lot of people that were not British sympathizers, that were also not revolutionaries, that were harmed. And in in our historical hindsight, we consider their sacrifice to have been worth it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Do we say, when do we say, and I'm not saying that we do say, I'm definitely not saying we do, but when do we say that this, the sacrifice of minorities in that neighborhood that are affected by the violence is worth it for what the violence represents? what it's in response to, and what it seeks to undo. I will not offer an answer to that question, and I kind of don't want to hear one, but I want people to think about that. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Boy, it's hard. It is. It's hard because... It's it's very hard. You're talking basically about... I mean, there's, there's a lot of different parts of that. One part is, you know, who's... Is this a cause that that people are willing to die for? And if so, how many people, how many mm. people are willing to give their lives for this? Right. Um, I know that multiple times over the last, say, 24, 36 hours, my thoughts have turned to, I wonder, maybe I should go down to Minnesota and... Join in? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, obviously, I'm, I'm a wuss and a wimp and a whatever. <laughs> Well, I have the convenient excuse of being in Korea, so I don't I don't have to grapple with that dilemma. Like for me the question is less like what am I willing to sacrifice, but how much more are we going to have to sacrifice? Right. Um I mean I there's know. a part of me, there's a dark part of me that does and I'm not endorsing this part of me either, but there's a dark part of me that fantasizes about oppressed minorities literally rounding up the racist cops and executing Mm -hmm. them without trial. And that's not the correct thing. That should not be done, I believe. But we have to acknowledge when we have those fantasies because there is a time in history when it's time to act on them. I think the reason that we all have those fantasies 
is because we're always wondering where the line is, when the line is, when is it that time? And yeah. I don't think now is that time, but I fantasize about it, and it's a dark fantasy, but uh, it's also very cathartic to imagine, isn't it? Yeah. Do Do you remember the um the Ahmad Arbery from like a couple That's, weeks ago slash a couple uh, yeah, months the ago? Jogger, the jogger. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I know that one really kind of shook me to my core. Um, and 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 this the the George Floyd it just this I mean, one hits me Orlando Castile and all of these people all um, of them do but the, who, for whatever reason the the George Floyd one affects me it triggers me deeper than possibly any of them. the nine minute video that could be the reason that's probably like, it's got to be a part of it that's um, probably but like these especially for some reason Ahmad Arbery got me get put this since we're talking about sort of dark fantasies my 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 dark fantasy was to basically drive down to Georgia or Alabama or whatever and just start walking around looking for white people being racist and antagonize them and not physically attack them probably although I would want to but like right. just spend the rest of my life wandering around the south fighting like, as like a literally just yes to be to be to, to be non-racist batman anti-racist batman yeah which is of course kind of ridiculous and like yeah. The, yeah. the the it gets really dark when when well batman is this part he is i i would i had a weird sort of like an actual fantasy about being like killed and and like martyred for for doing that like that's my that's my little dark fantasy. Right. And and I think it's again important to emphasize reemphasize that these are fantasies, but the fact yeah. that we are having them says something. Mm-hmm. The fact the fact that the current state of affairs inspires these fantasies is itself meaningful and worth noting. Um it, it, again, not it, a fantasy is not is not endemically a thing to be acted on. But psychologically speaking, the fact that a fantasy is occurring is indicative of something. Mm-hmm. And we're having dark fantasies because these are dark times. Yeah. Writing is not good. Writing destroys people's property, people's lives, sometimes kill takes people's lives. That is not good. Um, lives are already being taken anyway, though. What mi- lives are being taken? Black men are being murdered in the street daily. Lynched, lynched. I like lynched the in lynched. the street daily. That works for me. Um, and if if you don't want things, if you don't want this to get to the level of riots, then you have to fucking listen when you are told that. Black people are being lynched in the streets, and right. we need to do something about it. Exactly. This has been happening for, I mean, listen, it's been happening for 250 years. Right. For for 200 of those years, it was fucking legal yeah. to just murder black people. Yep. Or I guess maybe 150 of those years, or whatever. No, um, no, it was it was it was functionally legal. Well, for, we'll take for it about a hundred a hundred years of actual legal. 
then about another hundred years of basically legal. Yeah, and now, and, and now, now another fifty years where it's illegal, and yet nobody f-ing does anything. Yeah, no one. Right. It, I, I, I. Here's here's what I keep coming back to in my mind, and what what kind of keeps infuriating me, and what keeps kind of making me feel like I would riot too, is that okay? So the cops were fired. And you've got the district attorney saying, and he's saying it sincerely, I believe, we're going to really look into this. We're going to look at the evidence. And like, okay, that's fine. That's good. You're not going to arrest them until you investigate it. Well, where was the investigation before the goddamn lynching? Where well, where what? was the investigation between, before George was handcuffed? and thrown on the street where was the temperance and the patience and the like we need to get all of the information before we put our neck on this man there was none there was none and that makes me angry that that now his murderers get that consideration oh we're not going to take them into custody until we look at all the evidence okay well yeah maybe that's the right way to do it but that's not how it was done for him was it no. You make a really interesting point because arguably how do you have an, an investigation before the guy gets killed? But actually in this case, especially that cop, and I'm trying to look it up, but I can't find it fast enough and quiet enough. So that cop is in fact responsible for several other, uh, uh Derek Chauvin. Here we go. This was not his first offense. No. Mini fact check. As of now, ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has 18 complaints and a murder charge leveled against him in the last 19 years, only two of which resulted in any amount of discipline. Former victims of Mr. Chauvin have said that this is not at all surprising based on their experience, and one victim even said that the only reason they're alive now is because of their white privilege. Mini fact check. He has been in trouble for exactly this type of thing a number of times. He's killed other unarmed black men before as a police officer. And, and you know, I, I'm done with Amy Klobuchar because apparently, I, uh, uh, ostensibly anyway, she declined to prosecute him. This is not when new given the opportunity. I've been done with her for a long time because of that. I didn't know that about her. I she didn't was... know it was him actually, but I know about yeah. her history as a prosecutor. I, I I did not really. Um, I knew more about her, you know, what she was running on, uh, which obviously is not letting people off for murdering black people. That was not her platform. Yeah. So yeah, she did it. That, uh, I I knew that she had some like questionable prosecuting history, but I hadn't really looked into it fully because she was kind of a fringe candidate in the first place. No, that's, I mean, that's why I've told you that Joe Biden was not my second least favorite one. Um, He was ahead of Klobuchar for me the entire time. Bloomberg Mm. obviously was the worst. Um, I even would put Biden kind of ahead of Buttigieg because I think he was just a bunch of fluff and words without anything behind it. But that's that's a topic for a different time. We're talking about the murder and lynching sure. of minorities, and I don't want to get too yeah. much into the Democratic primary. Well, no, I I agree, but um, but you know that hearing that and and seeing this guy's list of of mm-hmm. offenses was 
the, exactly what you're saying. This this should have this should never have happened because that guy should never have been a cop or not never, but he should have stopped being a cop a long time ago. Um, th- when the the district attorneys and 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 stuff are saying things like, "Well, we're going to look into it," that even if they do mean it, two things. One is that's what they always say. They always say, well, we're going to look into this. Oh, both sides have very good people, right? That's right. the that's the line for we don't actually give a shit. We just need to wait for this to blow over so we can ignore it like everything now, else. To that, actually, the, the Minneapolis district attorney does have a history of being somewhat aggressive against police conduct but what they run into and you see this at other places in the in the country what they run into is that there's so many cops that are afraid of retaliation from within within their ranks that you put them on the stand and they basically clam up even if they themselves are not the ones who are doing the terrible things they won't turn in the people who are they won't turn state's witness basically, against them because they're afraid of retaliation. And on some level, what actually needs to happen is we need to start looking at these police departments as as mobs, as mafias. We need to we need to start taking like RICO cases to them and treating them like organized crime and separating the ones that are afraid to come forward from the ones that are. I mean, I want to see half of Minneapolis. PD rounded up and put in jail. Uh, not just him. I want to see every single person who refuses to testify charged with obstruction of justice and conspiracy to commit murder. I want the book thrown at the entire organization until every last ounce of corruption is weeded out. And I want that to happen in every single precinct in America. I think we all do. Well, not I enough. Think- what, what, I am angry tonight, in case you can't tell No, me. I get it. I get it. I'm right there with you. And I think what, just to throw a little extra fuel on the, that fire as if it needed it, that's super hard to do when you have a president who yeah. is glorifying retribution against whistleblowers. Yeah. I don't, like, what are those cops who are afraid to speak up? What is there out there? What What is in this world that's supposed to entice them to speak right. up? Exactly. Nothing. Right. And uh, it, it's, it's and if you put me in their shoes, I might oh be God. like I might think that everything that's happening is terrible, and yet still choose to make sure I have a job in order to support my wife and child. And yeah. I I can't blame them either. I blame the system, and I blame the hierarchy, and I blame the people with power who are not protecting the people who would be whistleblowers. I do not blame I do not blame an innocent cop for being afraid to sacrifice his family. It's just that he shouldn't have to be afraid of that. Mm-hmm. And I blame the people who are failing to ensure that he's not. Yep. <sighs> America sucks. Yes, and that's why I live in Asia. That's why I'm moved to Europe. Don't blame you. Not that Europe's really a lot better. Well, it is pretty Still racist. Still super white, yeah. Yeah. Well, to be fair, Asia's pretty racist, but eh. We've got 
we've got good health care and things like that. And, you know, the racism that happens here, just it's just not nearly as violent. It's stupid. And it, it I mean, yeah, people are disadvantaged and it affects their employment and uh, working conditions. But n- we're never afraid for our lives. Yeah, you're not choked to death on the street in full view of the open public with exactly. four other, with three other cops helping, or, or you right. know, with four cops total, That's, people taking videos just because you had a counterfeit 20 that you were right. trying to pass off. Right. That's just... Or that's you're, trying not, to sell a loose, you're trying to sell a cigarette. God, right. That's just not a thing that... Or you, you were know, speeding... And I, I am I am adamant about you know, there are people there are people in the American left who will tell me that I'm incapable of experiencing racism because I'm white and that I chose to immigrate to Asia and so it's not races racism when I get discriminated against. And I'm vocally opposed to those assertions, but I don't experience racism on the level that American people of color do. I do experience racism, but not not like that. Not, not even close. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah. We've been able to vent a little bit to each other yeah. here. Which do I you, needed to do. Did it help? It did. I needed to yell a little bit, and I needed to do it on a platform that can be heard by other people. Not yeah. just to you, but I want this, I want my anger published I want people to hear my rage. Yeah. Yeah. Screaming into a pillow works if you stub your toe. Yeah. But if you're watching hundreds of innocent people being lynched in the streets, screaming into your pillow just doesn't quite cut it. Nope. Not at all. So thank you for giving me a platform. Beat a dead source. Um, Thank you for letting me invade your podcast for a mini episode. I needed it. Anytime, my friend. And that's it. I think it was a very good episode. I think it would have been better for everyone had I edited it in a more mm, punctual way. Um, But things came up. You know, we've put out some good episodes since then. I do want to thank friend of the show, David, again. He had many good insights. And, uh, you know, Andy was there. Just kidding. You had good insights, too, Andy. All right. Anyway, till next time. Uh, wait, what are our catchphrases? Damn, I really need to come up with a catchphrase. Get this to Nathan kind of quickly, because I do. I would love this to be pub- published by Monday, if possible, while the news is still relevant. Um, oops. <laughs>